Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, first book of the New Testament. As we work through the Gospel account, the announcement of what Jesus is, who He is and what He's done, we see the unfolding plan of God, a plan that had been around for a long time. So in chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And this is a transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. So if you remember before, John the Baptist was preaching, baptizing. Jesus comes to him. Jesus is baptized. Then Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be tempted, tested by the devil. He passed all those tests. Now we come to this passage. Verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, Light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The main point of this passage is, Jesus proclaims the kingdom. Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. How do we live? There's no, there's no, no follow-up, just how do we live? You ever wondered that? How do you make it? One person said, we are told to live and to learn. But by the time we've learned, it's too late to live. You ever heard someone say, if only I could go back and tell myself when I was 20 what I know now. But by the time you know it, it's too late. The whole point of the Bible, the Bible being given, the whole point is so that you will learn and then live. Not live and learn, it's too late, but to learn and live. So what do we see? Well, as we go through the book of Matthew, if you want to sum up the whole book, the entire gospel of Matthew, there's one way you could divide it is the first three chapters is Jesus identifies with us. He's born like us. He lives like us. He suffers like us. Then the second part, which we're starting right here, is Jesus proclaims a message, which is most of the book. Then you get to the end. And you see Jesus sacrifices himself for us. And in the very last chapter, Jesus commissions us. That's for the whole book of, of Matthew, whole ministry of Jesus. So we've seen him identify with us. Now we get to the passage where he begins to share information that no one else has. No one else could have. And so have you ever, ever seen a journalism class where they want to find out what's going on? You ask questions. Who, what, where, why, how? That's what happens here. We're going to see a few things. Where, who, what, and why. When Jesus goes to start ministry and start telling people things, how does he do it? Where does he do it? Who does he talk to? And what does he say? And that, this passage is going to answer that. And in doing so, it's going to tell us how to live in the way that Jesus wants us to live. So let's look at the first thing. Where did Jesus preach? 
Now, when you're reading the Bible, often you'll say, okay, names, 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 places, never heard of these places, don't know where they are. Let's get to the main point, right? Like Naphtali, Zebulon, what? The sea, Capernaum. But if you notice here, because we believe that every word was given from God, in this passage, 10 geographical locations are mentioned. And just these few verses, five verses, 10 places are mentioned. Now, as we know, when we study the Bible, when you see things repeated, there's a reason for it. It's an emphasis. It's teaching us. It's telling us, hey, pay attention. These things keep on coming up. So when you see 10 places mentioned, one after the other, God is trying to tell us something about location, physical, geographical location. See, the Bible's not written sort of in a heavenly place far away. And Christianity is not meant to be lived in sort of an abstract way. So when we see here what Jesus ministered in a specific place, what does it tell us? Well, the first thing we see, he was in Judea. He was in sort of the main part of Israel. He was baptized by John there. Why does he move? Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. John's ministry is done. Not because he chose to be done, but because he was arrested and eventually executed. So why does Jesus leave the main part of Israel and move? Persecution. Disruption. What's this telling us? When God came to this earth, he made decisions, he made changes based on problems. Disruptions. His ministry began because of a problem. So when we talk about our lives, most of what we do is what? Avoiding problems, solving problems, preventing problems. But what Jesus shows us is that if you want to grow, if you want to become a follower of Christ, if you want to see growth in your life, in your ministry, in this church, there has to be something that drives you forward. This is the only time it's talked about. Remember in Acts? They were persecuted and they scattered so that the word would be shared. Paul would go from city to city. Why would he leave the city? Because someone was trying to kill him. You see the pattern? How does Christianity grow? Usually by being forced out of where it is. Why did Jesus begin his ministry? Because of persecution. Even the Baptists, the word Baptist church, where did the Baptists come from? They were forced out of their homeland, and as a result, they became what we are now. Now let me ask you this. If it went... If this is how it works for Jesus, how's it going to work for us? How do we grow? How do we begin new aspects of ministry? How do we reach new levels? By just being smart and hardworking? Same way Jesus did. That stuff comes into our life and pushes us forward. Persecution brings growth. So where does he go? Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. What's Capernaum? No one knows where this place is, right? It actually doesn't exist anymore. We know about Nazareth because it's talked about in the previous chapter. Nazareth was a nowhere place. So when we think about doing ministry, we think about growing, reaching people, helping people, there's a danger in thinking it's all sort of spiritual, otherworldly things. But you know why Jesus went to Capernaum? You know the difference between Nazareth and Capernaum? They're fine. (laughs) 
Nazareth was tiny. Capernaum was big. Nazareth had about 200 people. Capernaum had about 10,000. Capernaum was next to a sea where you could travel. Capernaum was on the edge of the persecution. So when Jesus was persecuted, he could flee to the other side of the lake. In other words, Capernaum had better logistics. Does that sound spiritual? Making decisions based on just logistical things? Just access to roads, to populations, to information? Doesn't sound spiritual, does it? But when Jesus does it, what does it show us? That Christianity is about your whole life. It's about using the resources that God has given you, both spiritual and physical, to spread the message. That means where you're located. He could have stayed in Nazareth, but he didn't. He went to a larger location where he could reach more people. We can't divide things in our Christian life. We can't say, well, this is for God, and this is for everything else. Church is for God, and we worship God there. But when I go to work, it's work. That's not what happens. Where we physically exist changes how we minister. Where we live directly affects how we serve God. And so Jesus makes specific changes in order to serve God a specific way. Now, what's interesting about Capernaum is it's unexpected. You see, Jesus had been prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. That makes sense. Okay, so he was born in Bethlehem. And then what you would expect is he'd either stay in Bethlehem or maybe go to Jerusalem. But then there was a prophecy about him living in Nazareth. It's like, okay, I didn't see that coming, but it was prophesied. Then he goes to Nazareth. But this wasn't prophesied. But it was part of God's plan. In other words, you don't know what God's planning next. And there's not always a roadmap for what's next. Sometimes it happens and you look back and you say, oh, that was part of God's plan. So when you see Jesus moving to Capernaum, it's unexpected for everyone. No one was expecting this. Everyone was surprised by this. There's no indication that he would go there. But it says, so that it might be fulfilled. In other words, God has a plan for his people, and you don't always know what it is. So what does that tell us? You can relax a little bit. You don't need to know where the next place is. I didn't mean for this sermon to be so specific to our church right now, but it, it does seem to be very specific. You don't need to know where you're going next. God's already got a plan, and you're part of it, and we can trust him. Amen. And so we see with Jesus here is there was a part of the plan that no one knew about, but it worked out. And it had to do with his location. But it wasn't just Capernaum. It says, which is by the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a lake, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee is just a region that includes Nazareth, includes Capernaum. But here's the thing about Galilee. I'm not going to make any connections to America because there's a lot of people from a lot of different places and I don't want to insult anybody. But wherever this draws in your mind, it's backwoods, it's rural, it's disconnected, it's not the center of things, but that's where Jesus goes. He leaves the populated central part of Israel and goes to sort of the rural ministry. Why? So you don't know why until later. You realize no one wants to go there, right? When you want to make it big, you don't go to the country. You go to the city, right? You go to where people are, where the jobs are, where the recognition is, where the access is. Jesus does the opposite. He goes to the rural regions, the backwoods, disconnected, 
looked down upon. Jesus doesn't do things the way we expect him to do things. In other words, he's going to change us in ways we're not looking for. He's going to reach people that we're not expecting. He's going to work in places we don't expect. It's a, it, so often we have anxiety because we don't know what to expect. Does that cause some of you? It causes a lot of anxiety because you don't know what's next. This is saying, relax. God knows what's next, so it can be exciting because you know it's going to be good. You just don't know how. You know the next step's going to be good, even if you don't know what it is, because God's in control. Now, the thing about Galilee, it says Galilee of the Gentiles, it was mixed religions, cultures, far from Jerusalem. You see, Jesus came to the Jews. He is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And where does the King of the Jews live? In Jerusalem. So that's where all the religious leaders were. That's where the influence was. He goes to Galilee, far away from Jerusalem, surrounded by people who are not Jews, in a culture he didn't fit into as well as the Messiah. As we grow and live in America, you realize that America is becoming less of one thing and more of a lot of things. And sometimes we're afraid of that. We're afraid to see America changing to become so different than what we're used to. And so there's so much confrontation, there's so much conflict, and there's so much diversity in, in sort of hostile ways. Jesus has already been there. When you read about Galilee, it was a clash of multiple cultures. At one point, the entire region of Galilee had been evacuated of Jews. There were no Jews that lived there. And everyone else moved in from the surrounding regions. And then the Jews came back in. And you can see the sort of hostile environment that is. That's where Jesus chose to minister. So when we see things in our country that are diversifying, that are causing conflict, it's not the first time Christians have lived in that sort of situation. Jesus went there because of the opportunity. So now we live in a unique opportunity an opportunity to be in the middle of conflict where worlds are colliding. But Galilee was also disrespected by everybody else. You know, they, they actually talked funny in Galilee. They would, uh, they would drop a certain letter out of the Hebrew alphabet, and then they were mocked by people in Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? So even the way they talked was laughed at. They were sort of country bumpkins. They would come into town, and they'd be, so, you know, everyone would laugh like, oh, look, this is electricity. Have you ever seen it before? This is indoor plumbing. But Jesus goes there to where they're disrespected, which means he will be disrespected. By identifying with Galilee and choosing to minister there, when he makes his trip to Jerusalem, they mock him too. You see what Jesus is doing? He's identifying with disrespected people. He's turning the world upside down. There's a, uh, a Bimba proverb from Zambia. It's a people, group of people. It says, Ako usuli ikopa noko. I'm assuming you don't speak Zambian. Translate, the person you despise might well marry your mother. <laughs> they despise Galilee, and it turns out that the king came from Galilee. So you may despise a group of people, but God could use them to change you. You look down on them like everyone looked down on Galilee, and that's what God chose to use. So who do you despise right now? Nobody. I love everybody. Great. You're like Jesus. But for the rest of us, there are groups of people we look down on. 
it may well turn out that they're the ones who change you, who teach you, who minister to you, who show you the way. Jesus is showing us that when he arrives, things are turned upside down. So that's where Jesus preached. But who did he preach to? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting, Galilee of the Gentiles? Jesus was a Jew, but the place he lived was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Why did he go there to minister? And why was that specifically mentioned twice? 700 years before and then fulfilled here. Who did Jesus preach to? Everyone. You see, when he's introduced as the king of the Jews, you might get the indication that he's only preaching to a certain group of people, which makes sense to us, doesn't it? You choose your group of people, you speak to them, and the rest of the world, well, they're on their own. But what this verse is showing us, he specifically went to a region that had Jews mixed with Gentiles. It's interesting, when you look at a map of Galilee, it's part of Israel, but it's surrounded on all four sides by non-Jewish nations. The Phoenicians are on one side, the Eturians are on the other side, the Greeks are on one side, and at the bottom are the Sumerians. It was surrounded by non-Jewish people. And in that region were a mix of cultures, religions, kinds of people, ethnicities. Jesus goes there and specifically mentions, I'm going to the place where everyone lives. All different kind of people. So that no one is confused. Sometimes people say, talk about ethnicity too much, talk about racial reconciliation, but you notice how often it comes up in the Bible? This is only the fourth chapter. It's already been mentioned five or six times. When Jesus chose to prop, when there was a prophecy chosen, it made a specific point to talk about diversity. Remember, you learn and you live, or you live and you learn. Hopefully, by the time you get to the end of your life, you realize that you were too narrow in the beginning of your life. You were too self-centered. You were too hostile. You were too close-minded. And as you get older, hopefully you'll realize, well, I can ease up a little bit. What the Bible is telling us is you can do that before. Why did he say Galilee of the Gentiles? Because people naturally identify only with their own people. They only look to be around and to minister and to work with their own kind, with their own people. And Jesus says, that's not how this works. I'm going to live in a group of people who are very different from me so that everyone knows that if you're different, Jesus still loves you. If you're not like everybody else, if you don't fit in, Jesus already came to people like that. And he'll come to you too. The Abrahamic covenant, this has been prophesied 2,000 years before God promised Abraham, I will bless all nations through you. But in that process, the Jews had changed that to say, God will only bless Jewish people. What had happened? They had listened to their own culture. They listened to their own leaders. They listened to their own reason. And as a result, they were against God. Nothing's changed in America. Human nature is still looking out for its own. You're looking out for your own people, for your own good. And Jesus says, that's the world, but when I show up, I'm reaching everybody. Right. Intentionally going out of my way, moving into a new area so that I can reach more people. 
That's God's plan. And if you're not part of that plan, you're not part of God's plan. If you're not intentionally reaching out to all kinds of people, all ethnicities, all races, all cultures, all economic classes, you're different than Jesus. And we don't want to be a church that's different than Jesus, do we? So we need to be as intentional as he was. But the greatest thing about that, when he says he reached everyone, there's something else combining people. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in their region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Who is Jesus here for? He's here for those people who are oppressed by death. Now, you know what no one wants to talk about or think about is death. Right? We're, we're here to be happy and hopeful, not think about dying. The Bible says, no, I'm sorry, you're going to have to think about it. If you're going to read the Bible, you're going to have to think about dying. And so when Jesus comes, he comes, he, he only reaches out to people who are going to die. He says, if you're going to die, I'm here for you. In other words, he's here for everybody. Ecclesiastes 7, so this is what the Bible says. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind. And the living should take it to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. What should we take to heart? What should we focus on? The Bible is saying death, because it's the end of all man. Some people are happy, some people are rich, some people are poor, but everyone dies. And when you ignore that universal factor, you miss the point of the Bible. But this is exactly what you're being taught. Your culture is teaching you to do the opposite. Ernest Becker, he wrote a, a, a book in 1974 called The, the Denial of Death. He wrote it, won a Pulitzer Prize. He said the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying it in some way. Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. As awareness calls for awareness of death calls for types of heroic dedication that his culture no longer provides for him, society contrives to help him forget. Your culture is designed to make you forget about what's going to happen. And it gives you a million ways to do it. You know why there's an opioid crisis in America? Because they've gotten to the point where they realize that nothing's going to work out and drugs help them forget. You know why Amazon is one of the biggest corporations in America? Is because we don't want to realize that everything's going to end, so we're just going to buy something that gets there one day shipping. Distractions, forgetting, avoiding, working and working and working so that we don't have to face the fact that everything is going to die. Like, ah, oh, it's so depressing. But it's true. It's real. And when we ignore it, we ignore both the Bible and Christ. Now, religion does it too. It's not just the world. There's a kind of religion that tells you you can avoid death. One famous uh, independent Baptist preacher said, sin is basically that which causes bad consequences to me or someone else. The ultimate consequence of sin is death. If we could just find what brings death and avoid it, 
we could avoid death. Death of dreams, death of homes, death of hopes. Since we don't want to die, we should avoid sin, for sin brings death. That's a clever religious way of saying you don't have to think about death. You can avoid it. Just do the right thing. Do these things and death won't come. You can be the first person to avoid all the bad things in this world. You can avoid death. And so you'll go hear preachers who preach a sort of prosperity gospel that says Christianity will make you prosperous. It will reverse the effects of death in this world. It's a false gospel. It's helping you drug yourself with religion out of the reality that death is coming. Remember what Mark said, that religion is the opiate of the masses? It can be. Just like heroin, so religion. Making you forget that the end of all man is death. Here's what the Bible says. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good so also it is for the sinner. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. That's, that's the Bible. Does that not sound like the Bible you've heard? Because we're avoiding the parts about the Bible that says you will die. You must face that fact. Whether you're a Christian or not, you will die. You see, there's a movement on Christians that say we want to avoid anything that looks like death. Even symbols of death. But you know for most of Christian history that there was a fascination by Christians with symbols of death? Skulls, grim reapers. I'm not talking about crazy, I'm talking about Puritans, Christian leaders, some who would keep skulls on their desk. Go to a Puritan uh, cemetery from 500 years ago, people who are deeply invested in Christianity, and there's tons of pictures of skulls and grim reapers. Why? Because they read Ecclesiastes and said, we need to remember that one day that'll be me in the grave. The president of the school I went to always wears a watch with an audible second hand so you can hear it ticking so that when he's sitting at his desk working, watching TV, he hears reminding him that the end is coming, that death is coming. There's one fate for all men. That's the grave. Man is universally affected by it, and a wise person We'll take it to heart. We'll look at death every day. We'll think about the end of the world. We'll think about dying. Death makes, Matthew McCullough says, death makes a statement about each of us. You are not too important to die. So long as death remains someone else's problem, Jesus will remain someone else's savior. You think it's morbid to think about death? then you've got to cut out all the parts in the Bible that talk about death, including when Jesus died for us. You see, only by facing our own mortality can we see that we need a Savior, someone who will take us past the grave. We're all going to go into the grave, but some of us are going to come back out. But if you don't think you're going to go in the grave, if you've put that out of your mind, if you've banished all thoughts of death, then there's no need for a Savior from death. So before you criticize too much of the morbidness of society, maybe seeing a skull can help you remember that you will be a skull one day. Maybe seeing a grim reaper will not make you think of Satan, it will make you think of you. Better to be in the house of mourning 
than in the house of praise, the house of rejoicing. The wise, the Bible says, the wise will take it to heart, will focus on it, so that we can get to the next part. That's who Jesus came for. He didn't come to save the immortal. He came to save the dying. He didn't come to save those who are okay. He came to save those who sit in the shadow of death. They sit in the shadow of death, and so when a Savior comes, they look up. What did Jesus preach? We know where he was. We know who he's talking about. What did he say to people who know their end is coming? What did he say to those of us who are crumbling? You know your body's coming apart? It's failing you? You know you could be dead tomorrow? And all the plans you have are going to be done? Nothing is guaranteed. So what does Jesus say to that? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When faced with the greatest problem, the problem of death, what does Jesus say? He says a kingdom is coming. See, here's the thing about death that that Americans hate to look at. Death is a systemic problem. It permeates all parts of our lives. You know why you get frustrated at work? Because death is there. You know why you have midlife crisis? Because you realize death is winning. You know what depression is? It's a realization that it's not going to work out. You know why politics frustrates us? Because we see things coming apart, falling apart, dying. It's a systemic problem. Christians who read the Bible know that sin does not just affect individuals. It works through systems. It creates structures. It creates organizations that will further the cause of sin. It should be no surprise when you find out that organizations and cultures and entities are perpetuating sin, whether the people in them know it or not. You know, you can be part of a group that's hurting people and you don't mean to hurt them. When God talks about a kingdom, he talks about a system. And that means if sin and death are systemic, if they're pervasive through all systems and all groups and all people, then you need a new system. You need systemic change. We're conditioned to think that only your decisions matter. That all you're responsible for and all you can change is what you decide, and you're not really affected by anybody else. Jesus says that's not true. The kingdom is coming, and a kingdom is a group of people. It's a way of living. It's an organization. It's God exerting his rule through systems. And Jesus says the only thing that's going to fix the death problem is a new system. Not just immortal people. You see, have you ever heard the curse of immortality? The curse of immortality is you get to live forever while everyone dies around you. We all wish we could live forever. But then you realize everything else goes on the same. So just because you get fixed, you're not happy. So what the kingdom is, is everyone gets fixed. The system changes. The world changes. How do you get into his kingdom? Repent. But doesn't that make sense? Repent. You can't mix the two together. When you have death, you can't mix it with life because what do you get? You get death. It's either all life or all death. The Bible is showing us that the world now is all death. 
everyone dies, everything comes apart. So this new kingdom can't have anything about that. So when you're asked by God, it's not what are you going to do, it's which system are you a part of? Which kingdom are you a part of? You're either a part of the kingdom of death or the kingdom of life. The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of heaven? Repentance from one kingdom to the next. And you know what this world offers you as you're dying? Money. Comfort. Relationships. Fame. Power. Chrysostom wrote a thousand years ago, the more men have about them, so much the more they are bound. As therefore with regard to the prisoner, when you see him with irons on his back, on his hands, and often on his feet too, you do account him most miserable. So also the rich man. When you see him accompanied with innumerable affairs, account him most miserable. For together with these bonds, he has a cruel jailer too, the wicked love of riches. We live in the richest country that's probably ever existed. Which means we have more chains around us tying us to this kingdom than anyone has ever had. The more you have, the harder it is to give it up. Jesus says, repent. Repent of what? Everything. Repent for the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which means choose the kingdom of heaven means rejecting the kingdom of this world and everything in it. You see what? You want to avoid death? Isn't that a great offer to avoid death altogether and all the systems that are are part of it? Great. Avoid everything connected with death. Repent of everything connected with death. Repent of this world and turn to Christ. Turn to the heavenly kingdom. But look what Jesus says. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The whole point of this passage is that everyone's dying, but one thing changed. They didn't change. Not a single person changed here. The only thing that changed was that Jesus showed up. That all of these people were sitting in the shadow of death. They weren't walking. They weren't searching. They weren't looking. They were sitting because there was nowhere else to go. Because what people realize is that if death is everywhere, what's the point of doing anything? What's the point of moving from one place to the next? So the only thing that can change in this passage is that someone outside shows up inside. Someone who's not from the region of death goes into the region of death. Someone who is not bound by death comes to find you. He says, a great light has shone. What did Jesus preach? He preached himself. He said, I am that light. You've got nothing to give me, but I've got everything to give you. What does light do? It seeks out the darkness. What is the kingdom but the king ruling? And so in this passage, the king shows up to the people. He says, I'm here. I'm ready. I've come for you. You didn't come for me. You didn't go looking for the light. You sat in darkness. We still sit in darkness. Death is just as powerful now as it was back then. And there's no way to escape it. And so we sit. And all we can do is wait. Wait for who? Wait for Christ himself. Wait for the light to find us. When it's pitch black, you don't move around, do you? You don't know what you're going to step on or step off of. And so that's what's happening here. The darkness is so great. The death power is so great that somebody has to come to them. The light has to dawn on them. So we understand that you are hopeless. You've got nothing. You are sitting in pitch black in a body of death surrounded by systems of death. And the only thing that's going to change for you is when Christ steps into your life. You don't step into Christ's life. He steps into your life. Union with Christ equals union with the kingdom. 
What does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the people. Jesus leaves his home. Jesus seeks out the people in darkness. Jesus, in this passage, proclaims the kingdom, always taking the initiative, always seeking, and always finding, always suffering, always dying. He comes, finds us. He speaks to us. He calls us. He dies for us. He suffers for us. Why? Remember how? How did he come? Who did he go to? Where? Why? Why did he do this? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Why did he come find people who were dying? Why did he come find people who rejected him, who hated him, who killed him? Because he loved them. Nothing else in this world is powerful enough to overcome the systems of death except for God loves. That's what Christianity is about. The power of love to overcome evil. But not just any kind of love, God's love. So Jesus loves us, so Jesus finds us. Jesus loves us, so Jesus speaks to us. Jesus loves us, so Jesus dies for us. Jesus loves us, so Jesus calls us. That's what Christianity is about. It's about God coming to people who are not even looking for him. Amazing grace that he would leave his home and find me sitting in darkness and then rejecting him even then. He still comes and finds us. And then to do that, to overcome death, he dies. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his hands, his head, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so great a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is here. He's come near to us. So turn to him. Let's pray.